We're here. We're here with Seth Andrews. Good morning, Seth. How the heck Good are morning. you? Morning. Thanks for the invite. Thanks for letting me hang out. Yeah. I, well, you know, I I recognize that appearing on my my channel will, will probably be a big boost to you. Um, it, 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 it really of, is of exposure. Um, so I can I really feel the follows and the likes coming right, in. I mean, right. Just like an avalanche <laughs> of goodness. And I owe you, Kenneth. Thank you for. Um, I really appreciate you being here. I'm a, I'm a big fan of your work. Um, I, my first exposure to you was a, a talk that you gave um, that was called uh, Christianity Made Me Talk Like an Idiot. And that and a number of other sort of uh, what I consider to be the greatest hits of Seth will be in the, uh, in the description to this video. Um, I don't want to spend too much time talking about, uh, you know, biography and background. There's a, a ton of other places people can, can find that. Um, Seth is the man behind thethinkingatheist.com, the thinking atheist on YouTube, as well as a podcast and has a outstanding book. You can see my copy here is kind of worn out because I've been through it twice now. Confessions of a former Fox news Christian. Um, I, I want to talk to you about, uh, skepticism and epistemology and how we got here. And I think the best place to begin uh, is by talking about the yellow and black attack by talking about striper um oh yeah oh yeah well i mean for those who know my background know that i came out of a culture of christian music and at the time i did another speech called the copycats where we talked about how that christian especially contemporary christian music was always watching pop culture to see what was hot and then a couple months after something hit in quote unquote secular radio, there'd be a Christian version of it. And then we'd sell it that way. Well, if you like uh, Taylor Dane, you'll love Kathy Tricoli. If you love <laughs> right. Paul McCartney, you'll love Phil Kagey. If you Phil love Kagey, Joe Cocker, yeah. you'll love Phil Driscoll. We, we, if you love um, Wilson Phillips, you'll love Sierra. We had a Christian version of everything. Yeah. But you know, for the people who wanted a harder edge, Striper comes along. And, you know, these guys, long hair and makeup, and they're wearing yellow and black spandex, and they're posing on bands with machine guns on them and stuff, you know. And, and I was at Striper for the To Hell with the Devil tour at the Brady Theater. It's an auditorium we used to call the Old Lady on Brady. And I was second row. And, I mean, it's just blistering sound coming out of the yeah. speakers. It was just insane. And did back you, then, <laughs> did you catch one of the new tests? Abnormal. Like we thought, oh, we're cool, we're awesome. Like we're rocking for the rock. We're rocking right. for Jesus, you know. And now I look back and I just, you know, I want to go back in time and find that young Seth and just grab him by the shoulders and just shake him. You know, just shake him. What are you doing? What are you thinking? So, so I, Striper was one of my father's favorite bands. Um, it was Striper, it was DeGarmo and Key, it was Phil Kage, um, Wayne Watson. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm dragging you down a, a very cringy memory lane here, I'm sure. But, um, when I was growing up in this evangelical bubble, uh, I wasn't aware of bands like, you know, Guns N' Roses. To me, my, my first exposure to, to rock were, was bands like Striper. Um, and that's something that I want to talk to you about is, is this, this sort of Christian culture that was walking side by side with mainstream American culture and how over time um, that Christian culture with its own music, its own books, its own films, websites, news sources, has continued to grow and grow and people are, are in a, in a bubble. It's, I think the effort by Christianity to stay relevant, 
I did a speech on this as well. where We talked about how they go after children. I spoke about it a bit in the copycats where more and more, and we're seeing this with these sort of seeker friendly Tony Robbins, motivational speaker type churches, the Joel Osteens and stuff where you go in and they don't throw Bible, a literal Bible at you beyond the love verses. They don't get into health theology and don't care about a young earth and they may not even talk about a literal adam and eve a literal noah's flood it's really more about you are somebody you can do it you know you have value go out and make your mark in this world kind of thing and yeah and i think when we see that science is more and more making the fundamentals of christianity irrelevant and debunked and even nonsensical and immoral, how does Christianity survive and thrive? Well, it has to evolve. Now, if you want proof of evolution, just look at Christianity. Because if Christians today attempted to practice this particular flavor of faith in, say, the 11th century, they would have been burned at the stake for heretics. Oh, you know, I don't believe there necessarily was a literal Moses. You know, oh, back in the day, they'd have freaking put you on the rack, you know? Right. And uh, so instead of marrying itself to the basic tenets of the religion, Christianity becomes relevant by becoming uh, a cultural force. So, you know, it's the people you know, it's the music you listen to, it's the jewelry you wear, it's the t-shirt on your body, it's, it's uh, you know, the activities for your children. And so, you know, that's why Bible illiteracy remains a huge problem globally, but especially in the United States. And you have to say, well, how can three out of four Americans profess belief in Christ or Christianity while they know nothing, I mean, nothing about the Bible? And the answer is, is that they've accepted a cultural faith, kind of a feel-good faith. It's a social exercise. It's an expression. It's, you know, the stuff they do more than the stuff they think about. And I think, you know, this sort of evolution is one of the ways that Christianity has remained popular in the 21st century. Yeah, I completely agree. This idea of it being a culture, um, speaking from my own experience, I I didn't know I was in it. I'm reminded there was a, a, David Foster Wallace gave a, a, a commencement speech once that began with him telling an anecdote where there's these two young fish swimming and an older fish comes along and asks them, you know, hey boys, how's the water today? and swims away. And the two young fish look at each other and go, what the hell is water? And <laughs> there's this idea that a lot of us aren't aren't even aware of the water that we're swimming in. I know that was true for me when I was a, a, a Christian uh, years ago. And I think it's one of the most valuable things about your work is, is that uh, opening the door to, to greater empathy for our neighbors who are, are living in this alternate America. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Well, if I can jump in, I'm reminded of my fourth grade year in this little cocoon called Temple Christian School. And uh, the uniforms were slacks and there was a clip on tie on Chapel Wednesdays. And we were dressed in the colors of the American flag. And and this was our normal. Like we just didn't know any different. If you'd have put us out in the rest of society, they had looked at us like we were freaks. Like, what, what's going on? We, we're out right. playing basketball in the school parking lot, and we're wearing dress slacks and shiny shoes and neckties. You know, yeah. we to us, it was that's that's normal. And you think about so much that happens within religion 
if it wasn't for religion, you'd think it was just insane. Like com monthly communion. We're right. going to go in and we're going to symbolically eat flesh and drink blood. In some other context, you'd be like, that's really culty and weird and crazy. But if you cloak it in Christianity and make it your normal, right? I mean, circumcision. Let's go. You know what offends God? The fleshy tips of someone's penis. That has to be excised. Okay. Well, you know, without religion, how, where does that come from? And I think uh, religions are great at sort of uh, no normalizing what is truly bizarre and abnormal behavior. Yeah. I love the Sam Harris quote about that, where if you uh, if you say magic words over your cornflakes and believe you're eating the body of Elvis Presley, you've lost your mind. But if you do more or less the same thing in church on a Sunday with some Latin words and a cracker, you're just you know right in the mainstream of Catholicism. Um, I like that meme out there of, about communion. The caption says, eat Jesus one cracker at a time. Right. And then, the, <laughs> then there's the other question, like how many communion wafers do you have to eat before you have eaten a whole Jesus? Like, log I have questions logistically about communion. So. Are you familiar with the, uh, I mean, this isn't a crime that, to my knowledge, is prosecuted anymore, but the idea of host desecration? Host desecration? Host desecration, yeah. This was not, a, I'm not familiar. This is a, a, a crime that used to be prosecuted where people, because Jesus now comes conveniently in cracker form, that uh, people <laughs> who would who would, you know, if you say, take one of those crackers and, and break it and throw it on the ground and disrespect the cracker, that it's like a, it's a form of blasphemy, that it's, it's, it's assault on, on the body of Christ. Um, this is, people were put to death for this, uh, you know, in, in sort of pre-enlightenment Europe. Um, but uh, yeah. well, in, in fundamentalist churches in my part of the country, anyway, the idea too with communion was you weren't supposed to take communion unless you had just, I mean, just confessed all your sins where right. God wipes your heart clean. Right. So the, the uh, teaching was at least in fundamentalist churches, a lot of Pentecostal churches that if you took communion, but you were tainted, you hadn't done your, your, I don't know, daily prayer asking for forgiveness for being awful that you were offending God by participating. And I don't even know what the consequences were supposed to be, but we were warned, like, don't take communion unless you've dropped to your knees and asked Jesus to cleanse your heart or else. You know? Right. Yeah. No, I'm, I, I'm super familiar with that. Um, uh, sort of astride this, uh, this modern American Christian culture that we're talking about, um, there's also conservative culture. And I grew up on Rush Limbaugh in reading your book, um, the way that you, you break down this uh, this process of during your commute, having your mind primed for outrage. I'm wondering if you can talk to us about about the process by which you arrived uh, as a Fox News Christian. I inherited most of that because my mother and father were both activists and they were both evangelical conservatives, those two words married together so much then and certainly so much now. And I, you know, get a lot of heat because we talk a lot of politics and I throw a lot of shade on conservatives because quite frankly, there's an infection, a cancer of theocrats within a specific political party. I mean, you'll find Democrats who I mean, it's like Biden, he's a devout Catholic and he'll throw God out, but you know, he's also a humanist. He's not, you know, he's not trying to discriminate against LGBT people and he's right. not trying to strip women of their autonomy and he's not trying to turn the government into a church. I mean, the, the people who say there's an equivalence, they're just, they're either lying or they're not paying attention or they're in denial. 
and um so i mean when i was growing up this was uh you know the rise of the moral majority was taking place we saw this sort of religious fervor wrapped around reaganism and reaganomics and the ronald reagan administration and phyllis schlafly my parents used to get the schlafly report and she oh, was yeah. hugely puritan woman oh, yeah. who you know women should be in the home and women should be submissive to their husbands and this is part of our family model for the united states a godly country which is better than all of those other satanic countries it's just pathetic you know so you get primed by this and you're also primed by apocalyptic thinking that's come out of your religion everything becomes a spiritual battle i mean it's not just well we disagree philosophically or we no. disagree yeah, on tactics. you're being persecuted you're being yeah. persecuted yeah yeah i mean you are uh you aren't just disagreeing with me you're oppressing me so then you crank up the radio and you have very well-spoken people like rush limbaugh and the hosts of fox news etc and they are great at striking that nerve they're coming for you the other whoever that is and there are lots of others if you're an evangelical conservative the democrats are other they're all socialists and satanists foreigners are coming they're at the border they're going to come strip everything that you love away from you the apocalypse is nigh you know the end times are upon us satan is everywhere and uh there's a lot of gears in that machine i think some of it is um that you genuinely are raised in fear i mean christianity despite all of its love language is a fear cult i mean underneath all the love god and god loves you language is the the threat of hell and damnation and torture and fire and agony and horrible stuff and you know it's based on a bible where god had just essentially just put everybody that he didn't like or pissed him off in a meat grinder and um so you know we were trained to be afraid and then there's also i think a utility in claiming that you are a crusader a persecuted sect for god's sake you know this is a kind of theological masturbation where if i'm a righteous warrior oppressed by the evil horde i'm i'm like sparta right i'm i'm going to go down fighting for the cause of protecting the people and my god you know spartans weren't doing god but you get it right we are noble we are we are few yet we are strong and mighty and we will go down fighting and and that was really a masturbatory exercise it was a way for us to feel important about ourselves and and a lot of other factors going on but you know this right-wing machine they're great at making you distrust everybody else you rely on them solely for your information about the world they tell you that you are persecuted that they're coming for you and they just essentially swirl you into a frothing rage about everybody and everything that you consider to be other yeah Sorry for the long answers, Ken. No, no, no. What hey, happens listen. when you invite a radio host on your <laughs> podcast? Well, it's, well, it's what we. I mean, if people want to listen to me talk, there's videos of that. But this is this is you know you're here for a purpose. So yeah. all right, the, uh, all right. You know the 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 great one of the great things about your book. I'd put this book on a must read list for people who want to understand how we got here. Um, the yeah, Confessions of a, a Former Fox News Christian. Um, books like, uh, Kevin Cruz's, uh, one nation under God are outstanding. Um, Stephen Hassan's book about, uh, cult thinking and how it affects, uh, the Trump MAGA crowd is, is great. 
Um, there, there are a number of people out here who are doing great work uh, in sort of unpacking. It's, it's, it's almost like you're, you're like a Jane Goodall type of figure reporting back after observing the, the gorillas, you know, and, and yeah. explaining to all the outsiders, you know, what, what's going on in this culture. Um, and then there's guys like me who are sort of reformed gorillas going, yeah, we used to do that shit. No, <laughs> so, you know, it's like, I always like to say in Oklahoma, you know, when I tell people it's an atheist, I'm an atheist and a, a liberal atheist, you know, here in red state, Oklahoma, it's just so rare for them to see one in the wild. Mm. You know, I'm out, I'm among them and they cock their head and go, oh, really? You know, like they, they don't know how to approach me. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, I, I have, I'm, we're seeing a little bit of a, a little bit of a rise of secular and free thought and, and humanist values, but Mostly, I mean, I'm surrounded by Trump flags. I'm surrounded by churches and Bibles. And again, a culture of people where when I ask them the basics of their faith, I ask them, well, you know, who wrote the book of Genesis? And, and how did this happen? And how do you explain penguins walking 8,000 miles to board a boat in the middle of the desert in the Middle East? And what does heaven look like? And, you know, those types of basic questions. Um, they just, they don't know. They don't care. It's, it's, uh, what Dr. Daniel Dennett likes to call belief in belief, you know, yeah. a comfort in it. I don't need to know anything about it. And that's, I think very tragic. Actually, then it's a great example for people who want to explore this idea, uh, that, that Seth touched on about, um, you know, religion being a great examples of evolution. Uh, Dan, has a whole book about that called breaking the spell that explores religion as a natural phenomena. Um, Daryl Ray, who I just had on recently, has another book that explores this idea called The God Virus for people who want to dig into this kind of stuff. Um, if I can jump into, there's yeah. another great, it's a really short book uh, by Dr. Andy Thompson. The title off the top of my, I think it's the one book where he, he I'll have to look it up and maybe I can send you the link because the title, as I get older, the title is vanished from my memory and I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say that. Um, but uh, he talks about the utility of religion as a way to create tribal bonds between non-kin. So, you know, you're an individual on the African savanna back in, you know, primitive man, and you are an individual, you're alone, you're more likely to be killed by predators, you're more likely to be attacked by rival tribes, you're more likely not to be able to find and accrue the resources that you need. So religion provided a resource or a utility for non-family members to become tribal. And in those tribes, they were stronger. They were better at warding off or even conquering other tribes. They were uh, better at uh, grabbing, you know, the resources and cultivating those for the betterment of all. And, you know, in the infancy of our species, we can see the utility of religion in that way. Not that religions were true, but they served a function. And of course, in the information age and beyond, that utility is no longer there. You know, I wonder about that. I, because I, I, a lot of the arguments that I encounter from friends of mine who are deeply ingrained in, in the world we're, we're talking about, will talk about the utility of, of their religions, of having purpose, of having community. Um, I find often that when I talk to these people that the the reasons that they give for why they believe aren't in any way related to actually why they believe. Um, but it's more of these utilitarian arguments. I wonder what remnants of our, you know, uh, you know, primitive primate brains are still, you know, 
deeply rooted in these these other needs, the needs that aren't necessarily for believing what's true, but for being part of a community or for having purpose. Yeah, we're tribal as a species. Now, yeah. I also think utility has been useful because people are always seeking meaning. You know, they want to see a plan. They're pattern seekers. They, they're going through a crisis and they need comfort. I mean, utility, the utility of religion is obvious for anybody who dares to look. What's the interesting conversation for me? The idea of non-theistic religions. You know, I used to say, come hmm. on, you know, religion is religion. But then, you know, I'm friends with Lucian Greaves. He's co-founder of the Satanic Temple. Okay, well, I'm not really Satanism material, but. You know, they're a secular organization. They don't believe in a literal spiritual plane or a literal devil, but they they sort of use religious, I don't know, mythology and practices, traditions, expressions to frame. Like they, they use it as a framework for the human experience. It's really kind of the, the plumage for their lives. Mm -hmm. And I get that, you know, I, I look at him and I'm like, you know, all right, if, if that's how, if you want to dress up and have ritual, and I think ritual has utility, I think rituals, like we we use rituals all the time as part of the human experience. I don't think you have to lie to yourselves or other people, certainly children, but you know, if you want to have like secular Jews, roughly half, statistically half of Jews have some doubt about the existence of God or the supernatural if they don't disbelieve outright. So right. what are they doing? They're practicing a, a cultural Judaism, right. which is about the music and the clothing and the food and the traditions, which for them provides the framework for their lives. They enjoy that as a human expression. And I think I've come to the point in my life where I say, fine, you know, knock yourself out. I mean, the point is that you are using tradition and ritual as an expression of your humanity and to make your life better, more fun, more fulfilling, whatever. As long as you're not embracing magic, I don't have a problem with right. that at all. Yeah, or harming anybody else. Um, yeah. This all, to me, leads kind of nicely into, uh, I, I really despise uh, a, a thing that I see an awful lot, especially in sort of the online brands of atheism, of labeling believers as being just dumb or dismissing them. Um, I think that uh, the more that we can empathize with people and understand their reasons for believing the things that they believe and to recognize that skeptics and religious believers are often just using two completely different sets of tools to arrive at their conclusions, um, that it can make us all who are operating in this skeptic, atheist, humanist space more effective in communicating with these people, um, which leads us into epistemology. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a more heavy-handed segue than I intended at the outset, but uh, there are four questions that I've been asking all of my my guests, Seth, um, and I want to dive right into them uh, with you, if you don't mind. The first one is if you were to identify one key feature of of sound epistemology, what would it be? And the way that I I like to further frame this question is if you could wave a magic wand and give every every believer in the United States a tool to help them get closer to to having a relationship with reality what would you what would you give them curiosity this is something that we tend to kill in kids we see young children who are born they're little scientists their whole lives their young lives are how does this work and why does that happen where do the stars come from? And why is fire hot? And 
you know, when I'm drinking the water glass, why do water droplets appear on the outside when the water's on the inside? Right. right. <laughs> and why does the, you know, why do the dogs turn in a circle before they lay down? I mean, every little dumb thing in the world is all is an opportunity for kind of a, an intellectual adventure. It's sometimes when I'm signing stuff for young children, I'll sign with the sentence, make every day a discovery. Because if you look at what we do to kids is that we tend to train them. I just want to point out that in my book from Seth, it says, make every day a discovery. Well, you're not a child. So <laughs> maybe unless I'm, maybe he, that was a subliminal thing. Maybe I thought you were an infant. I don't know. He's not pulling your leg, people. He really does this. I just hope I didn't mean Evidence. infants. I really believe that. I, I say that also a lot to people who have come out of, a culture where you are taught the answer. I, I was this kid. Jesus is real. The Bible is real. Adam and Eve is real. Heaven and hell are real. Okay, you can go and ask questions, but unless you come back with the answer that is Jesus, you're wrong, you're misguided, you've been lied to, you're just in rebellion, you're, you know, whatever. It's a rigged game. One of the if the greatest, uh, statistically, it's been shown that when you talk to teenagers, one of their biggest fears, if not the biggest fear, is not death. It's the fear of being embarrassed. And so often that embarrassment comes with not knowing. Like you're in class. It's always the kid who's called on who doesn't know the answer that feels humiliated. I don't know is for them like an admission of weakness. And we train that in people, whether we mean to or not. And, uh, you know, my own curiosity, hell, I had all the answers. I was a teenager. I was a young 20 something. I'm this cocky guy. I stopped asking the questions. I was incurious because ah, I don't have to answer, ask any questions. I already know the answer. Right. And, uh, I, I cheated myself of the discovery of a much better and more fulfilling and wonderful world. And, uh, you know, it, it was when I became genuinely and honestly curious again, that things began to open up for me and I began to meet people that I had written off or didn't know about. And I began to discover what evolution was instead of the caricature of evolution. I was taught in Christian school. And I, yeah. I began to understand, uh, that, life is so much more fulfilling without all this magical backstory. It was my own, it was just an, a, a sort of a commitment to be honest with myself and just keep kicking and, and ask those questions. And it's okay. How did the universe begin? I don't know. Yeah. And, and that's okay. I mean, that's the, that's the right answer because I, I don't know. Where did the first cell come from? I don't know, but you know what? Neither do you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, so I think curiosity would be, you know, I, if you're honest and, with yourself and honestly curious, the whole world becomes an opportunity for finding new things, new people, new ideas for having a better life. So that would be, you know, the, again, a long answer to the short question, curiosity. That's awesome. It, it, what's interesting, I've, I've been loving this because every single person I ask gives it gives me a different answer. I haven't had any, any repeats yet. Um, hmm. So it's been it's been really cool. Um, yeah, man, I, any Sunday school teacher knows that kids, kids ask all the, all the questions like you're describing. Um, and we say what we say, because I said so, yeah, or because yeah. it is, or because the Bible tells me so I was talking to Dale McGowan 
He's a humanist, former uh, director of the Foundation Beyond Belief, and he's author of Secular Parenting and some other books out there. And he was talking about his own kid, uh, talking about uh, Santa Claus. Hmm. And, you know, the skeptic in me wants to look at the child. I mean, like if it was me, I'd be like, Santa Claus is fun. He's a myth. You know, he ain't real. Right. But I would have been giving the kid the answer. Like, yeah. this is what it is. And sometimes, you know, I think you need to do that to protect the child. But his response was, well, a lot of people say, you know, or I think his kid had asked, what did the reindeer eat? And stuff like just these logistical questions. And instead of giving the kid an answer, like a hard, fast answer, he's like, well, a lot of people say that they eat corn or whatever. But you know what? Why don't you go out and ask some questions? Yeah. And how does Santa get to fit down the chimney? Well, a lot of people say, but you know what? Let's go and ask some more questions. And what happened eventually was, is that he was walking into a supermarket and it was Christmas time and his son uh, looked at him about, and they were talking about Santa Claus and his son said, you know what I think, dad, I think it's really the moms and dads. <laughs> and he, and, that, and he was delighted and he had real ownership of that because he had used, um, you know, the scientific processes to, to discover it. He wasn't spoon fed it, but he had come to that and he felt such joy in that discovery. So for him, it wasn't like, oh, I'd been cheated of Santa Claus. Yeah. He'd gone down and, you know, he put the pieces together and this is training people how to think instead of telling them what to think. And I think that's the big difference. I, this is so funny. I, I just had a, a big conversation. I, this was a conversation on, that was on a Facebook thread that I was in and, and a friend of mine, who's a Christian, uh, shout out Larry, the Christian, um, was talking about this later and was going, you know, I just think Santa represents hope. And if you take that away from your kids, then, you know, you're taking away their, their ability to have hope around, around Christmas time. And, and, and I'm, I'm thinking there's, there's so many good reasons to, to have hope that don't have anything to do with believing things on bad evidence. I, 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 I completely agree with what you're saying that, that, that teaching kids how to think rather than what to think doesn't close any doors to them. Well, and I have two more thoughts, forgive the uh, sort of drawn out response, but you know, we Take heard a lot in the church that it, well, don't teach your children about Santa Claus because when they find out Santa's not real, they'll distrust you, which means when you told them that Jesus was real, they won't trust you when it comes to Jesus. So there was this pan, again, a fear culture about sure. teaching your children to believe in Santa Claus. And I think, you know, our mind, we are imaginative creatures. Uh, let kids enjoy Santa Claus. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you don't have to sell them a whole lie that, oh my God, yes, he's absolutely real. But I think, you know, you treat it with a light touch. You allow the fanciful brain to play a little bit. And there's, I think, a way to do that and enjoy the mythology of Santa Claus and to really crank sure. up the fun factor. I don't care how you do it, but I think, you know, we are creatures of imagination and certainly children are. And, you know, let's, let's use that as an opportunity to make their childhood even more magical. You can do that without teaching them actual magic. Right, so. right, right. Uh, since we're talking on Christmas real quick, before I get to the rest of these questions, um, you did a, a great episode of the, the Thinking Atheist podcast recently that um, I, I listened to where you, you were talking on, about Christmas, did a, sort of a deep dive on Christmas. And I, I encourage everyone out there to go download it and listen to it. 
Um, one thing that you, you talked about that I'm embarrassed to say had not occurred to me before was the question of consent as it pertains to Mary in the story. I had just breezed by that my entire life. Even, even I'm, I'm eight years into being a skeptic and a humanist. I had just never thought of that before. Would you mind telling everybody what I'm talking about? Well, you know, I had, uh, I, I posed a few controversial, well, not controversial to us, but controversial to the church questions, including is the baby Jesus actually the villain of right. the activity right, story? Right, right, right. Like the creator of fiery torment came to earth to rescue us from the fiery torment that he was threatening us with. I mean, you know, blah, blah, blah. But you know, the, uh, the Virgin Mary story, is interesting on so many levels. First of all, you know, the, the fact that the, the word virgin comes out of an Old Testament mistranslation, which doesn't really mean virgin, you know, just meant she was old enough to get pregnant. And uh, this notion that, you know, you've got an unwed teenager in a hugely Puritan time and place. And so God decides the best plan to save the world is to impregnate her and then make her have to, you know, live in a community where she would be judged for being an unwed pregnant teenager. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, well, what, what are you talking about? But the point that you're, you brought up and I hadn't thought about it much um, until just a few years ago, but you know, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and just essentially informs her, you know, God needs your uterus to save the world. He doesn't say, would you like to be the mother of God? Would you right. like to participate in this salvation mechanism? Gabriel just shows up and essentially says, your body isn't yours, belongs to God. He needs it and we're going to use it. And uh, there are a lot of layers to that onion relating specifically to the, to fundamentalist Christianity and its view of women as right. vessels, vessels for a male God submission or submissive uh, to male human beings. Um, you know, there's a lot of, a Already the Christians are shaking their head going, no, God is love. God is love. God is love. It was a privilege, you know, it was a privilege. But the truth is, is that a benevolent God would have actually sat Mary down and said, look, I got a plan and I would like you to be a part of it, but it's really up to you. You know, what do you think? You know, this is your body and, and I love you and I would never want to make you uncomfortable or put you in a bad place and certainly make your reproductive choices for you. So what do you think? I mean, even if, even if the, uh, the baby Jesus plan made sense, which it certainly does not. Uh, a, a good and benevolent God would not have co-opted the body of a woman in that way. And I think, you know, the consent question is something the church should be addressing. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I, yeah, I'll, I'll, that'll be another link that we put in the in the description. It's going to be just miles of links on this one. You're very kind. Uh, on to the next uh, question. I wanted to ask if there's anywhere specifically when you go out and just engage with the world around you, whether you're on social media or just driving around in Oklahoma, where do you see bad epistemology most specifically manifesting in the world today? Oh, wow. I know that's, that's the big, broad, crazy one. Yeah. I mean, I can't put that one in a, in a box. I, you know, religion is an answer first culture. So, I mean, that's for me, ground zero fundamentalist religions, theistic religions, um, because they aren't using the Socratic method to, they aren't using the scientific method. Curiosity is given way to this sort of smug assuredness. So for me, fundamentalist religions, but I also find that, you know, human beings 
even atheists, sometimes even atheist activists, they're, you know, we can be just biased. We're creatures of bias and influence and we reinforce and we double down and, and there are a lot of people with good and bad ideas, whether they're religious or not. And uh, so I can't put that one in a box. If I had to pick, I, I really think fun, fundamentalist theistic religions are the ground zero of, of, of bad epistemology. They, because they are not interested in the journey toward a fact, they start with the fact and then using confirmation bias and a number of other tools assemble this sort of supporting quote unquote evidence to support a position that they arrived at before they even began the journey. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's important for people to understand is that the, the methods are different. Um, I mean, science is all about disproving your hypothesis, not sort of selectively cherry picking evidence to, to support your conclusion. Um, Probably the difference between, you know, truth with a capital T and truth with a small T. You yeah. Know? Um, religion, fundamentalist theistic religions, there are a, a culture of closed-mindedness, but the kind of closed-mindedness where it cannot be opened. I'm reminded of, uh, there's like a, I forgot who said it, who said, you know, it's true that a clo an, an, an open mind is eventually meant to close on something. And what I mean by that is, like, we know that the earth is not flat, right? We know. I mean, we know that the earth is not flat. Now, that mind, my mind is essentially closed on that, but it's not welded closed. If you brought me evidence that revealed that, well, actually we live in a snow globe and, or we're all part of the matrix and there is, I mean, come on. At some point I must be prepared to accept new evidence, but overall when a preponderance of evidence reveals evolution is a fact, right? my open mind can close on that. But the difference is, is I think in theistic fundamentalist religions, it's closed, but it's welded shut and impervious to any new claim or new idea. And man, that's a dangerous place to be. When you stop listening, when you stop analyzing, when you are incurious in that way, and then you pound that insanity into the minds of your children and train them not to think, well, I think part of it results in much of the culture that we see today, a culture of magic, apocalyptic thinking, pseudoscience, distrust of actual science. It, you know, it's a terrifying thing that we're seeing all around us. Right, right. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, the Bible is, is pretty specific and so is the Quran. So is the Book of Mormon, that these are the final revealed truths, capital T truths that have uh, come from on high. Uh, you know, these are uh, the the... I mean, we've got the entryways to, you know, using words like final and total. And we're talking about final solutions here. And and <laughs> those and words. What's fun, too, is I mean, <laughs> back to uh, watching the God who was not the author of Confusion, who's the head of a church with thousands of splintered denominations, walk into yeah. a room full of apologists and say, which Bible translation is the most accurate? And then just watch them chew each other to ribbons in a thunderdome of apologetics. Right, uh, right. You know, that's always fun to see. Well, okay, the third question, you touched on this a moment ago about how, you know, no skeptics or atheists, you know, we're not perfect, rational beings. Uh, the third question I've been asking everybody is, where do you see bad epistemology manifesting in your own life? <sighs> oh, 
I'll tell you too. Aaron, Aaron Ra was on recently with me. He gave me my favorite answer. He's like, you know, like how the fuck would I know? They're, they're my blind spots. I, like, I'm not going to know where they are. <laughs> I mean, I, I share his, you know, his concern. Nobody thinks they're the bad guy in their own story. If you are <laughs> genuinely blind to something, how do you know you're blind? Back to your earlier question though, and I'll tie these together. When you talked about uh, this notion that, well, religious people are all stupid because we we've seen that not quite as much but especially when i first started as an activist a decade ago religion is a mental illness no right? yeah i hate that religion <laughs> is an idea religious <clears throat> people are insane well if you're speaking in a colloquial sense you know there's i mean when i look at pastor greg Locke and paula white oh <laughs> they're, 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 that's insanity but in the colloquial sense but it's not like they are mentally diseased you know re religious people are simply embracing a bad idea and ideas can be changed and so i have tried in my own life to and it's really hard because you know i'm a i'm a confident guy and I'm, i've been doing this a while and i've been dealing with the same arguments for freaking ever over and over again and i tend to just go on autopilot but I've been trying as best I can to um, not go on the defensive mm -hmm. and be like, well, no, well, actually, I'm right about this, which is a human tendency, but to take a breath and say, all right, well, any, is there any merit to that? And I have found that if I respond to it immediately, I'm worse. Uh, I, I, because I haven't had a chance to sort of step over the emotional response and actually digest it. I'm, I'm better if I walk away and take 24 hours and sleep on it and think, well, you know, do they have a point? Is this correct? What parts of it might be correct or incorrect? And you can kind of divorce yourself from emotion a little more. I'm at my worst when I tend to jump in immediately to defend a position instead of taking a breath and walking away and trying to in some way be introspective. Um, uh, but as far as, you know, the worst parts of how I come to knowledge, you know, I, I'm with Aaron, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, that's probably a, I need, I need a psychologist to come in right. and be on the couch <laughs> and maybe they can tell me, you know, it's an interesting point you just made because it's taking a step back and pausing before giving an answer is the opposite of what is, is or demanded by our society right now, being first with the hot take is, yeah. you know, everyone's racing to uh, to embarrass themselves the quickest. Oh, right I can now. be that it's guy. Same. Oh, you should see same. me on Twitter. You should see me on Twitter. Somebody says something monumentally, what I think is monumentally stupid or wrong. And already I'm just down here and I'm like, oh, you know, 280 characters. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> and, you know, a, a lot of times it's, it's fruitless, it's useless, and then you get caught. I don't, I don't do this anymore, but I've seen people, they just get caught in a feedback loop uh, as if you're going to be able to convince somebody by calling them a dumbass on Twitter. You know, that's <laughs> like the, or they're simply trying to reveal that this person's a dumbass and then they amass all of their friends and supporters and followers who then amass against the other person's followers and supporters, and they're all tweeting back and forth, and it right. becomes sort of white noise. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I engaged in that a, a long time ago, but I've come to the point in my life where I'm like, 
I'm not going to change the world on Twitter. I can establish a position. I make statements. Sometimes I'll have some fun, even snarky fun. But I I don't see Twitter as how we're going to change the world. All right, yeah. Twitter's a place to vent. If I'm going to change minds, I'm not going to do it on Twitter. I'm probably not going to do it on Facebook. I'm probably going to do a lot of that dealing one-on-one with human beings, not avatars, not two-dimensional images. But, you know, we treat people a lot differently when we're sitting down in front of them over coffee than we would if we see them pop up on a Twitter feed. And uh, when it's come to, when I I come to the moments of how, how do we change minds, I don't think most minds are going to be changed by one-on-one engagements in, in the virtual world in this impersonal atmosphere. I think the personal encounters, the one-on-one encounters, the very human encounters, those are where you know you can be more thoughtful and people aren't as quick to jump on the defensive and there's not name, hopefully not name calling and insults. And, and that's where I've had the most success in my own life. Well, that leads very nicely into the last question. You, you may have. That's what I do. That's I answered it. I do segues. That's all. That's what I do. The last question is: How do you think we should communicate the importance of skepticism and sound epistemology to people? I, I I'm tired of all of us always wanting to win. I mean, it, when you engage, we have to say, "Well, what's your motivation?" I mean, sometimes I do want to see bad people exposed. Right in the era of Trump and MAGA and Paula White and Franklin Graham and Jerry Falwell Jr. and Kenneth Copeland and Pastor Locke and all these other awful people doing awful things. And, you know, we're, we're seeing an overreach of people who are doing real damage. We're seeing the rise of white supremacism. We're seeing people who don't think that black lives matter. And we're seeing people go to war against reproductive rights for women or gay people or whatever. I mean, there are some awful people out there. And I think there sometimes you got to stand up and, and you got to go to go to war. You got an ideological war against them. But a lot of times when we're in the arena of ideas, we start with this sort of mentality where it's not that I want to rescue them or disabuse them from a bad idea. I want to, I'm going to win. Yeah. Look smarter. I got it. I got better data. You're going to, you're stupid and I'm going to reveal you as stupid. And I, you know, I want to see less of that. I have really, it's been hard in the last four years for me. As I see the, my race car has really been in the red. I found myself not, not a lot of patience. I've become less and less tolerant. But when it comes to speaking about religions to religious people, I have made a specific point to stop and say, this is a human being. They have a past, they have a present, they have a future, they have a family. Um, I am not going to assume the worst. I'm not going to dehumanize them. I'm going to not automatically start with this idea that religious people are bad, because a lot of people I know who are religious, they're more beautiful people than some of the atheists that I know. I mean, ultimately, it comes down to, are you a good human being? But so often we dehumanize people and, and we're immediately, do you have a second for me to tell you a story? Go for it. Yeah. So this is, it sounds kind of like a stupid example, but I actually had this conversation. This happened yesterday. So I'm driving along. I had to go in for a physical therapy appointment. I've got an injury to the hand and, and I was driving back 
and there's a toll booth that leads onto the highway, and it's two lanes. On the right, there is one single narrow lane, and then there's this little catcher for coins. You got to throw your coins in it so you can get through. And on the left is what we call Pike Pass, where they have registered your car with the tag agency or whatever, and, and you're billed automatically. Of course, the Pike Pass, that's fast. You just boom, boom, boom. You don't have to slow down. And so I'm about to get on the highway and I'm heading up to the toll booth about to hit the Pike Pass lane. And there's a red, I'm sorry, a white SUV in front of me. And he's in the right lane for the coins. And then he's in the left lane for Pike Pass. And then he went back to the right lane for coins. And then he was in the middle lane and he was slowing down and slowing down. And it was obvious he was confused and he didn't really know what to do. And finally, he chooses the Pike Pass lane. But instead of speeding up to get on the highway, he slows even more until he stops. So he's blocking the lane. And then I see the car door open. Now, cars are already lining up behind me, right? They're ready to rock and roll. They want to get on the highway and do 80 miles an hour. This guy stops, clogs the lane. He opens the door and he hops out. And then he, you can see he's digging through his cushions or his door or his panel or whatever for coins. Mm. He had chosen the wrong lane. Well, it took about 12 seconds before the horn started. Right, right. People were pissed. And this guy looks up and he's waving and he's like, I'm sorry. sorry." And then he runs around this big pillar and he throws coins in to the catcher. But apparently there weren't enough coins. He runs back to his car. Oh, and poor guy. More money. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. So there is now a line that's past the entrance and it's going back onto the street, and people are, I mean, angry honking. <laughs> and you know, inside the car, they are cussing this guy. They are like, what the hell? What's you, idiot? Stupid God. I can't believe Get off the road. Right. You can hear them in your, yeah. your mind. And he grabbed some more coins and he ran as fast as he could around the pillar and he threw the, the rest of the change in the hopper and he ran back and he got in his car and then finally he he is in motion and he gets on the highway and the rest of us follow him on. And I was thinking about that guy and I thought the first response, I, I almost, I mean, for a second and then I, I got past it because I was starting to get philosophical about the, the toll. <laughs> <laughs> but I I was I was struck by the first reaction was to punish him, and by looking at his face, you could see he was he new to the state. He didn't know what a Pike Pass was. He just got confused. Was he hell? Was he even from the country? I don't know. Um, he he didn't mean to hold anybody else up. What did he cost us? All right, it cost us a, a couple minutes, maybe. Uh, okay, um, he was waving and apologizing. I'm sure he was humiliated. And as the horns were all honking, he was he was probably just, oh, I can't believe this is going on. He probably thought about it all day. And what did it cost the rest of us? And what did we surrender of ourselves to punish this guy for what was an honest mistake? You know, he had he had a wrong idea. He, oh, he went and chose the wrong lane. And uh, 
we see that a lot in our lives, I think. I don't think I'm being you know, too dramatic when I say that we are people who are quick to other other people and lay on the horn and scream at them and call them names and get off the road. What do you think you're doing? And you're an idiot and those types of things. When some people are just trying to find their way and they're embarrassed when they don't find their way or they make a misstep or a, a wrong turn. And in my own life, I have made a commitment. And that may be why I actually thought about the guy yesterday in that light is I am going to try to do a better job of seeing that, you know, this is a human being. It is a person and I'm going to treat them like a person and realize that we all have our flaws. We all make mistakes. We've all had bad ideas. I try to remember myself. When I was a hardcore fundamentalist, evangelical Fox News Christian bigot and all the bad ideas I'd been, you know, programmed with and see that this is not a person who is evil. They're a victim of bad ideas and they're making mistakes, but the solution is not to lay the horn on and call them names, but to say, where did this come from? How did they get there? Are they operating in good faith? Are they trying to do their best? How can I help? You know, hell, I probably should have popped out of the car and thrown some money in the hopper for him. But I, you know, I just wasn't thinking about it at the moment. Humanizing the opposition, that is the big challenge I think that we have. And, uh, you know, if we can do that, I think everything de-escalates. Everything begins to drop. The white noise begins to clear. The fog begins to fade away. And I think then we can see a clearer path toward a better future. I can't think of a better, a better, uh, place to put a period in this conversation than that set. That's, that's fantastic. I, I, I completely agree. No, um, can you tell people where they can find you, where the best places for them to pick up their copy of confessions of a former Fox news Christian? I feel like I should give you my American express number for all the times you've slugged the book. Like, you know, do you get a, I should send you a, a piece, a commission. A, I, uh, I sincerely enjoyed it. I, it, it's, it's, it's the most recent in a series that I've been uh, a reading of, of books that tackle sort of the same subject of like, you know, how the hell do we get to where we're at? Um, I do partly blame Striper, but you know, I think that <laughs> well, there are bigger culprits out there. Uh, confessions is, you know, I get into the history of Fox news, the culture that propped it up. We get into right wing radio, but we also get into a lot of these sort of, uh, issues that fundamentalists tackle, but they do so clumsily and wrongly. We get into everything from guns to the death penalty to reproductive rights, et cetera. American exceptionalism, you know, we're number one just because we wave a flag and chest pump and say we are. And, and I take the last chapter and kind of go after the more extreme factions of my own camp, because quite frankly, liberals are not immune from bad ideas right. as much as they want to wax superior. Uh, but, you know, I, I've got that and, and some other stuff. But you can see, uh, you can follow the, um, the videos and the podcast at thethinkingatheist.com. And then my personal website is sethandrews.com. And everything is all right there. And I, I, I would be uh, you know, remiss if I didn't mention that you're also a, uh, an elite uh, Twitch gamer as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I have to re look, I move through <laughs> video games at the speed of litigation. Okay. <laughs> I I enjoy PC gaming on Twitch as a distraction. My wife calls it bubblegum for the brain. And I think we all need it, right? Whether you play video games or you play golf or whether you, you know, you do cross stitch right. or what, everybody needs that, whatever that is, you know, stamp collecting, I don't care. 
but I enjoy video games. The problem is, is that I have, I have the dexterity and reflexes of the three-toed sloth. And when <laughs> things come at me, I just panic. And so I've got a gaming channel and it's called Seth Andrews Gaming Badly. And it's called that for a reason because I die horribly and frequently, but I guess that's part of the appeal. So uh, an, an elite dire, uh, an, an, <laughs> an elite perisher. I've, uh, I've, right. I've caught a few of the streams. It's about the same level of gaming uh, <laughs> that I operate at personally as well. Solidarity. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, gosh, uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on, Seth. Thank you so much for being here. It's an honor. Thanks for the invitation. Awesome. All right, Ethan. That's a good place to cap it.